so tonight we'll be looking at uh, verses 28 to 31 of Mark 13. And uh, all through, uh, we have talked about how uh, difficult a passage this really is. Anytime you talk about um, eschatology, anytime you talk about the end times, uh, there's always a certain measure of uncertainty uh, and of difficulty, right? There are some things that are clear and certain and sure that uh, the Bible makes very plain and that all Christians agree on. And then there are a lot of other things about the end that are not as plain and that uh, Christians don't all agree on. Um, And uh, we've seen uh, a little bit of both of that as we've studied Mark 13. And uh, in the last part of the chapter that we studied last time in verses 24 uh, to 27, we saw um, a passage that seems to be fairly clearly about the return of Christ, right? Um, Verse 27 says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. That seems pretty plainly, although you'll find disagreement even here, that seems pretty plainly to refer to the return of Christ. Then uh, we come to verse uh, 28, which says this, "From From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, Jesus now, um, in verse 28, gives us an illustration or a sign or or a symbol to look at um, in part to help us answer the questions that Jesus' disciples answered or asked him at the beginning of the chapter. Remember at the beginning of the chapter they said, Jesus, look at this wonderful temple that we have. Isn't it beautiful? And Jesus said, uh, you know, there's going to be not one stone left upon another from all these beautiful buildings. Um, And they said, well, when is that going to happen, and what's the sign that that is about to be near? Well, here he seems to be telling them um, when his return will be near, which is, of course, after the destruction of the temple. Um, But uh, he gives them this illustration from a fig tree, right? So he says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. You you know how the fig tree works, he's telling them. Uh, The fig tree, when the branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near, right? Just like um, I remember um, talking to uh, one of my siblings and saying, oh, that, you know, this tree has grown, you know, a foot this year, how do you know that? Well, you look at the branch of the tree and the part that's green on the end, right? That's the new part. The brown part's the old part. If you look at those things, right, you notice that Jesus is saying the same thing. If you look at a fig tree, right, and you observe it, uh, you notice that it starts to grow again after being dormant for the winter. It starts to grow again at a certain time. And when that happens, you know that summer is near. All over the Bible, right, we are told that um, God has designed the world around us such that we learn lessons from what we see if we will observe it, right? So in Proverbs, we're told, 
Go to the ant, O sluggard, right? If you watch how an ant works, you'll learn something about how you ought to work. Um, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount told people to consider the birds of the air. Right? They don't have barns where they store up grain, and yet the Lord feeds them. And you're more valuable than a bird, so why should you be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink? Here he uses a fig tree to say, if you're, if you're wanting to know how uh, to know when my return is going to be near, uh, think about how the fig tree works. Right, The fig tree begins to grow, to put on new growth right as summer is approaching. And then he says, verse 29, so also, or in the same way, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, or it could be uh, it is near, uh, scholars tell us, and um, that's just part of the way that the language works. It could be uh, an it or it could be a he. Um, you know that it or he is near at the very gates. Now, the reason why I say that is this. What, what does these things refer to in verse 29? Right? This is one of the difficulties of the passage. When you see these things taking place, you know that something is near. He is near, it is near, at the very gates. What are these things? Well, we would assume that these things are the things he just mentioned, right? But here's the difficulty. What he just mentioned was his return, right? So if the things he mentioned most recently are the sign of his return, or are are about his return, and he says, when these things happen, then you know that he is near. Well, of course he's near. He's returning, right? When the all these cosmic events are happening, and we uh, we said last time, um, somebody had pointed out that this this is uh, probably best described as a theophany, the way the, the way creation um, sort of convulses whenever God comes near, just like at Mount Sinai with the that the sun and moon being darkened and the stars and all that. That it's it's when God comes, when the Son of God comes, creation is convulsed, right, when that happens. And so if all of all of verses 24 to 27 are talking about the return of Christ, then verse 29 can't very well be saying that when the return of Christ happens, you know that Christ's return is near. That doesn't make any sense, right? Um, so um, one, uh, one scholar put it this way. He says, strictly the reference of these things should include the coming of the Son of Man, mentioned in verse 26, but as the sense would then be, when you see the Son of Man coming, know that he is in hand, know that he is at hand, which would be pointless, it is better to take it to refer to the signs of the end described in verses 5 to 23. So he's saying, when he says, when you see these things taking place, he's talking about everything from verse 5 to verse 23. Now that's a lot of things. Uh, And in verse 5 to 23, we know that there are things that Jesus said, these are not signs that the end is near, right? When you hear of wars and rumors of wars and whatnot, don't panic. That's not the sign that the end is near. If they were, the end would have come a long time ago because there's been a lot of that going on, right? Um, But there are, um, you know, some significant things 
um, that could be pointers to uh, the coming of uh, the return of Christ, right? Such as the gospel being preached to all the nations. Again, depending on whether you think that's something that's already been take, taken place or something that is still yet to be fulfilled as we try to reach people from tribes and languages who've never heard about Jesus. Uh, it's a difficult thing to pin down, right? What are the, these things that uh, when they take place, we know that either he is near or that it is near. Now, why, do, why is it important? Um, why would a scholar point out that it could be it is near? Well, because there are two things, right, going on in this passage. Two things being described. One is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in particular, which happened in 70 AD. And the other is the return of Christ, which is yet to happen. And we've talked about how those, uh, uh, Jesus' words about those two events, uh, they sort of mesh together in this chapter so that you can't always tell which one he's talking about. And that's... uh, can be a little frustrating, but it's not terribly surprising because that's how lots of prophecy works, right? That there are lots of, you read in the Old Testament, there's lots of prophecy in the Old Testament that when you try to pin down where does this fit in God's timeline of all the things that he's doing, it's not always spelled out, right? Isaiah didn't always say, 400 years after this happened, then this other event's going to happen, and it's going to be a period of 700 years where I don't have anything to say about, and then, you know, 400 years, we don't get that in the prophets. It's just sort of all uh, mixed in there together, and we have to try to uh, sort of sort it out, right? So it's, he could be talking, he could be saying, when you see these things taking place, um, That's how you know that the destruction of the temple is near because that is what he started out talking about, right? And if that's the case, um, then as somebody pointed out, the the main sign that he would probably be referring to in verse 29 when he talks about these things is the abomination of desolation that he mentioned in verse 14. So that's a real possibility, right? Another possibility is that he's uh, talking about... um, these potentially cosmic signs in verse 24, if they do happen before Christ's return, which doesn't seem the most likely, but it is possible. If those happen before Christ's return, then maybe those are the signs that are meant to indicate that his return is near. Um, it could be any number of things in this passage, right? Uh, which, again, is uh, a little difficult for us because if we don't know what the signs are that he's that this is near, then it's kind of hard to, we're not really getting the answer to the question, right? I mean, we are, but we aren't. Um, but uh, such is the nature of, uh, of prophecy, especially about uh, the last times. Um, then it continues to be difficult in verse 30, right? In verse 30, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now we're really in a quandary, right? Because if this generation means the people that are that Jesus is talking to right then, if this generation will not take will not pass away until all these things take place, then we have two or three options. 
one of the options is that Jesus was wrong. And for, I'm pretty sure everybody in this room, that's not an option, right? There are people who will say that. You know, it's not a big deal. Jesus got this little thing wrong. Well, if you believe Jesus is God, it's a big deal if he got something wrong because he can't get something wrong. We, we, we don't, uh, that's not even a consideration for us that he got something wrong. So uh, if he's not wrong, right, then what are the other two options? The other two options are that the whole chapter up to this point has all been about the destruction of the temple and not about the return of Christ. Now, that is a real possibility. right? He, and before I tell you why that's a real possibility, let me say this. Whichever way you interpret this chapter, whether you believe it's about all about 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, whether you think it's all about the return of Christ and what's going to happen at the very end, and it's just sort of loosely skipping over 70 AD, or whether you think it's about both of those events, one prefiguring the other, right? the destruction of the temple, prefiguring the suffering and persecution at the end. Whichever one of those uh, makes the most sense to you, there is at least one verse in here that makes your position very difficult. right? So, For the people who say that the whole chapter is about 70 AD, I think most of us would probably say the most difficult verse for them to explain would be verses 26 and 27, which sound like Jesus comes back and gathers all his people, right? Um, You'd say, well, what do you do with that? If you think all of this takes place uh, in 70 AD, how do you explain these verses that sound like Jesus is coming back? For those of us who think that verses 26 and 27 are talking about the return of Christ, right? then the people who think the whole thing is about 70 AD will come to verse 30 and say, well, what do you say about that? How do you deal with that verse? Right? So no matter where you fall, right, there's something in this passage that is really difficult to explain. So one of my main points Almost every time I spend any time teaching about eschatology, teaching about the end times, is let's all have a healthy dose of humility. Right? Let's all remember that no matter how we interpret this, no matter how we try to explain this, no matter what view we hold on to, there's somebody out there who's got a better argument than us. Right? There's somebody out there who's more godly than us, who holds a different opinion. So it's not about who's the smartest and it's not about who the, who's the most spiritual. You can find godly, highly, um, or uh, what's the best way to say that? People who have spent their whole lives studying scripture who, um, you know, whose spiritual lives you would admire, who would hold a different opinion about how to interpret this passage than you, right? Or than me. So there's all, that's always good to remind ourselves so we don't get too dogmatic, so we don't get too close-fisted about things that are really difficult to sort out, that um, it's, it's, it's just not easy, right? We can't, you can't get the whole church, the whole you know, body of Christ to agree on these things, and, and that's for a reason, right? So what would people say who um, would argue that this whole passage is about 70 AD? All right, let me give you a little, a little synopsis from, um, 
from a, a scholar who I think holds that view. Uh, here's how he says it. He says, the discourse as a whole, so all of chapter 13, works then as follows. Jesus has been asked about the destruction of the temple. His reply has taken the disciples through the coming scenario. Great tribulation, false messiahs arising, themselves hauled before magistrates, before kings and synagogues and whatnot. They need to know both that Jerusalem is to be destroyed and that they must not stand and fight, but must escape while they can. We remember that, right? If you see this happening, flee to the mountains. Don't go back in your house. Don't come in from the field. All right, then he says, there will then occur the great cataclysmic event, which will be at the same time, one, the final judgment on the city of Jerusalem that has now come with awful paradox to symbolize rebellion against Yahweh. Right, so Jerusalem has become the center of rebellion against God because that's where the Messiah was crucified. Two, the great deliverance promised in the prophets. So the great salvation is also going to occur at this time. And three, the vindication of the prophet who had predicted the downfall and who had claimed to be embodying in himself all that Jerusalem and the temple had previously stood for. In other words, Jesus is going to be vindicated when the temple is destroyed because he had said, destroy this temple, my body, and I will raise it up again in three days. Right? Everything the temple was for is now being fulfilled in me. I have died as the once for all sacrifice for sin and this people has rejected the Messiah that they have longed for. Now uh, judgment is going to come upon them. The temple is going to be destroyed and it's going to be proven uh, you know, that I am who I said I am. I, I'm the son of man. Now, all of that makes a whole lot of sense, right? Um, it makes a lot of sense out of verses 24 and 25, right? Where uh, it talks about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. Remember last time we talked about how that's more or less a quote from Isaiah in a prophecy in Isaiah 13 about the destruction of Babylon. So what this guy is saying is Jerusalem has become like Babylon. It has become a rebellious, wicked city, and God is going to judge it. Um, and this is, like we said, this could just be um, prophetic, uh, hyperbolic, like hyperbole language to say this earth-shattering event is going to happen, this event of cosmic significance. The temple, the dwelling place of God, is going to be destroyed, and Jerusalem conquered and that's a massive, uh, massive thing, right? And then uh, how would he explain uh, verses 26 and 27? Um, verse 27, I think, he, I think I read that he would explain that as um, the spread of the gospel, right? The, the, he will send out the angels, and the angels can also be translated messengers, and gather his elect from the four winds. It's, this is the book of Acts. He's, he's sending out his messengers all over the earth to preach the gospel, to gather in the people of God, to gather in the elect. Right? The most difficult part to explain would be, again, verse 26, where they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Um, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that... Um, he would say there that this is just, I mean, that the destruction of Jerusalem is a sort of visitation of Jesus, a, a visitation of judgment upon, upon Jerusalem. So, you know, 
there, there's a lot of that that makes a lot of sense, right? There's a lot of that that's pretty appealing because it makes verse 30 really easy. Because how long is a generation? About 40 years. When did Jesus die? About 30 AD. When was the temple destroyed? About 70 AD. It's about 40 years. No problem with verse 30 if that's what this whole thing is about. Right? But again, uh, a lot of us, I think, would say, I don't know, verse 26 really sounds like you see Jesus, right? You see his return. And so that sounds to me like we are now, you know, fast forwarding to the return of Christ. So if that's the case, right, if it is about the return of Christ, then how do we explain Jesus' statement about this generation in verse 30? Hmm. That's a little bit trickier, right? Um, One option is, again, um, to say uh, Jesus was wrong, which is not really an option for us. Uh, Another option for us is to say that um, he's talking about the generation that will witness the things he described in verses 24 and 25 and 26 and 27. Right, the generation who sees the sun darkened, right, and the moon not give its light, who sees the Son of Man coming in the clouds, uh, that that generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, once, once these things begin to unfold, then it's not going to be very much longer before everything that's supposed to happen will happen. In other words, the, the, the events of the very end are not going to be drawn out for another couple hundred years. It's going to happen um, in a short period of time, right? Um, so you could say that this generation is not the current audience that Jesus is talking to, but is the generation that will be alive when the signs indicating his return uh, is near begin to take place. That's not... 100% satisfying either, right? Um, so again, that's the, the reason for um, humility, right? A reason for um, being careful uh, about being too dogmatic about these things because, like, again, no matter what position you take, there are things in here that are really hard to explain. And the last thing he says in, in this little part, verse 31, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And we have evidence of that by the fact that we're studying them tonight, right? It's been over 2,000 years, and these events have not all transpired, if he's talking about the return of Christ, and yet here we are, gathered together, week after week, considering his words, which have not, like the words of so many people, been lost, you know, to the sands of time, or discarded as unimportant and irrelevant, Um, we are still studying these words because we believe that they were spoken by the Son of God himself, right? that he spoke truth, and that he was not wrong, could not have been mistaken, and though we cannot uh, ever seem to piece together all the things that the Bible says about how the end will come to pass in a way that makes perfect sense to everybody, we are still committed and convinced to uh, the, the truth, right, that um, what Jesus said is what's going to happen. We just haven't quite figured out 100% of what he meant by what he said. 
Right? So heaven and earth will pass away. The cosmos right, will be undone. And uh, depending on how you uh, read other passages about the end times, either replaced by a new creation or will be reborn, regenerated into a new creation. That's going to happen. The, the created order as we know it right now is not permanent, in other words. But Jesus says, my words are. My words are permanent. My words will not pass away. So that's why we give so much attention to them. That's why we diligently study them. That's why it's worth the trouble, right? That's why it's worth the effort to try to sort all these things out, uh, even when we know we're probably never going to get it all exactly right. We still want to know as much as we can. We still want to get as close as we can. Uh, We still want to understand as well as we can uh, what Jesus has said because his words are true and trustworthy and permanent. So any thoughts, questions, comments?